Today's reading is from Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. The image of gold and the blazing furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Thanks, Sheila. Um, 
I don't know if you're familiar with that story. Um, I've heard it many, many times before um, since I was a child, and almost exclusively, every time it's been taught on from Sunday schools to pulpits, the focus has always been on the second half of the story, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Sheila, you've said that quite a few times, so <laughs> well done. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, they're miraculously not harmed, Nebuchadnezzar's amazed and there's some application about trusting God or God rescuing us or about being brave and, and having faith. Uh, now, I'm not here to tell you that that's wrong, but I do want to approach the story from a different angle from the first half. So as we heard in the reading, um, Nebuchadnezzar built an image of gold 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide. That is about 27 metres or 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, about 2.7 metres. And I was trying to think of a point of reference of something that is this, that was that high. Um, it's kind of taller than a house, but it's, it's lower than a tower block. And I was sitting in church thinking, what? And I, I, looked, I looked up and I thought, I wonder, I wonder how high the apex of the ceiling in, in church is here. I asked Joe and he said, I have no idea. I asked Charles Tapson. I couldn't find Charles at the time, so I was chatting with uh, Chris and Brew, and Chris said, she said, this is how my brain works. If I had to run a cable up there, that's going to be a 30-meter cable. And Brew said, let's measure it with a laser. <laughs> you had me at laser, Brew. <laughs> this sounded like far too much fun, so asking Charles uh, was redundant. I did check this morning if he knew the height. I said, don't tell me what it is, but do you know what it is? And he said, yes, of course. Um, so we'll, 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 see if, uh, the la we'll see if your laser's working correctly, Brew. So I think Brew's going to come up now. Um, I thought this would be fun to do this live. We, we could have done it last week, but I thought we'd do it live right now. Um, um, but just show of hands, who thinks the, the, the top of the ceiling is going to be 30 metres or more? Raise your hand. No, who thinks less than 30 metres? Who doesn't want to commit either way? <laughs> who is pedantically thinking, are you going to measure it from the floor or from here? No. Bruce, should we have a look? I don't know yet, so can we have a drum roll? Sixteen metres. Sixteen metres? Yeah. I was... What do you think, Charles? Say again. From the floor. So Charles knows it from the floor. Sixteen and a half. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to see if we can get 27 metres uh, that way. We'll see how far it is. I might have to go a bit further back. Feel the tension rising. That's 20. Okay, 
So, I think if the statue was, the image of God was fallen over, it would, it's more or less the entire length of the church. Um, now, if you, saw, if you saw that image of gold today, even in the modern world where we've got skyscrapers and stadiums and all the amazing things you could build, if you imagine something that, that tall, made of gold, you'd, you'd be amazed. You'd definitely give it a second look. But to those in the ancient world, two and a half thousand years ago, it would have been utterly, or maybe even literally, breathtaking, set in the plain of Jura, so visible from about a mile away. You can imagine the midday sun reflecting off it. It would have been majestic, radiating strength, authority, and wealth, and a, a colonial symbol of the power of the Babylonian Empire, which at that time stretched from modern-day Egypt to Iran, from Turkey to Saudi Arabia, encompassing Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, centered in Babylon, in what is now Iraq. And as you picture, as you picture it in your mind's eye, perhaps, perhaps in your head you picture a statue. I certainly did. Maybe I saw a picture of a statue in a kid's Bible when I read the story when I was young. Or maybe I heard it referred to as a statue in a sermon. But the term used by the Bible is an image of a gold. Nowhere is the word statue used. I did a little research, and the internet is quite divided on this, as it is on most issues. Some say it would have been a statue of a Babylonian god, but others say if it had been a statue of a Babylonian god, they would have said which one. Some people say it would have been a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, but then logically, why wasn't it referred to as that in the text? I asked Joe what he thought, and he agreed it was more or less inconclusive. <laughs> so I thought, right, I'm taking this to the top. So I tweeted the Archbishop of Canterbury, <laughs> asking him, and I was quite surprised, I can confirm for you today that the Archbishop of Canterbury has not responded to my tweet. <laughs> um, he's a busy guy, no drama. Um, while we don't know exactly what it was, what it looked like, what we can be pretty certain of though, is that the image of God was designed to represent Babylonian supremacy. And inexplicably as well, at the same time, Nebuchadnezzar as the head of the Babylonian state. And the ritual worship of it is a little bit similar to saluting a flag, but far more extreme. It was certainly an idol, but the real problems, problem with idols is not themselves, they're just inanimate objects, it's the idea they represent. Now you might think, you know, not bowing down to an image of gold is probably not very relevant to us today. And you'd be right, I doubt anyone here has been forced or pressured into bowing down to an image of gold. Correct me if I'm wrong. No. Um, but what we do have are cultural ideas that can be venerated or sacred and metaphorically bowed down to. I want to talk to you about a man who collided with an idolatrous cultural idea. And not only did he refuse to bow down to it, he was instrumental in toppling it. I'm talking about Desmond Mpilu Tutu. He was born in 1931 in South Africa. 400 years earlier, white settlers had violently, violently driven the indigenous Khoi and San people out of their lands, ruled ever since. 
Black people were ruthlessly suppressed. There were severe restrictions on, on their rights. And in 1948, the system of apartheid, which means a partners in Afrikaans, was legally codified, codified, although prior to that it had been informally practiced. And a series of land acts set aside more than 80% of the country's land for the white minority. And this saw effectively wholesale theft of land from black families, plunging millions into poverty and homelessness. Non-white people had to carry documentation authorizing their presence in white areas, which was 80% of the country. Interracial marriage and relationships were illegal. There were separate public facilities for white people and non-white people. And the non-white population was completely politically disenfranchised. Even when walking down the street, if a non-white person approached a white person, they had to step into the gutter and bow their head. And this structural oppression of the non-white population was brutally enforced by the police with torture, violence, murder, and more. Just as Daniel and his friends were exiles in Babylon, Desmond Tutu was an exile in his own land, subject also to a cruel and seemingly all-powerful colonial force. And the idol of the day was not an image of gold, but an idea. The idea of apartheid, white supremacy, the idea that not all people were made in the image of God and equally important, the idea that black lives simply did not matter. That anyone who was not white was subhuman, not deserving of dignity, respect and opportunity. But Tutu knew that black lives did matter, as well as the lives of the other non-white groups who lived in South Africa at the time. And he refused to bow down to this evil, idolatrous and ungodly idea. In his 20s, Tutu had become a priest and he rose quickly through the ranks of the church to become an influential figure. By 1975, he was the fourth most senior figure in the South African Anglican Church, the first time the post had ever been held by a black man. Just as Daniel and his friends had risen to prominence and been accepted by the system, so too had Tutu. But rather than quietly enjoy the relative privilege he now enjoyed, he used his platform to speak out. Instead of residing in the lavish official residence provided for him, he chose to live in a normal house in the township of Soweto, an impoverished black area. And he publicly called for an international economic boycott of South Africa over the issue of apartheid. During the Soweto uprising, when over 600 were killed, mostly boys and young men killed by the police, Tutu was upset by what he regarded as a lack of outrage from white South Africans. He raised the issue in his Sunday sermon saying to an overwhelmingly white audience that the white silence was deafening and asked if they would have shown the same nonchalance had the youth killed been white. And Tutu continued to campaign against the apartheid, traveling the world, addressing the UN, meeting with presidents, prime ministers, and the Pope was awarded numerous honorary degrees, even winning the Nobel Peace Prize, eventually became the Archbishop of Cape Town the highest position in the South African Anglican Church. 
And as we know, the system of apartheid was eventually dismantled and South Africa elected Nelson Mandela as president. But Tutu didn't stop campaigning. For him, the idea of freedom and justice for the black people of South Africa, the idea that all humans are made in the image of God and are equally valued, it didn't stop there. It translated into other areas, and he was a well-known campaigner for other marginalized groups, the LGBT community, the Palestinians. He was critical of his own government's corruption, was involved in the peace process in Northern Ireland, and everything from opposition to the Iraq war to the Tibetan struggle to the perils of climate change. He did a lot. Now, you might listen to this and think, well, that's great. Uh, you know, how, but how am I supposed to emulate Desmond Tutu? He brought down an entire evil system. I'm just here trying to pay my bills and remember when Binde is. Um, and frankly, I feel the same way. But there's a really interesting story from Desmond Tutu's childhood. You may remember one of the rules of apartheid was that black people had to step into the gutter and bow their heads if a white person approached. When Tutu was just nine years old, he was walking with his mother they saw a white person approach. And before they had a chance to step off the pavement, the white man himself stepped off the pavement and tipped his hat towards them. This man was a priest called Trevor Huddleston. Tutu described it as one of the most defining moments in his life and decided there and then he wanted to become a priest. And in that moment, Huddleston was refusing to bow down to the cultural idea of white supremacy and little did he know the impact that small action would have. Now I'm conscious that as a white man talking about the life of a great black man I really don't want to make it all about the one white guy who had an influence on him um, but to be, so to be clear in that moment Huddleston refused to bow to the idea of white supremacy but Tutu's life work was toppling it. Every day we have the opportunity to make small acts of defiance to cultural ideas. That could be showing kindness to an ostracized person, not laughing at a sexist joke, showing dignity to a person that society deems lesser than everyone else. And the truth is these small actions can have ripples, they can have a profound difference, but it's not just an outward change, there's also an inward change. They also change us. They remind us of who we are, who God is, and his plan for the world. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And the Greek word used for conform here is syskematizo, and it means to be molded according to a pattern. It implies an ongoing and gradual process. It's the, it's the term from which we get our English word schematic, a scheme. And the word translated transform is metamorpho, means to be changed from one thing into another. It's where we get the English word metamorphosis, most commonly used to describe the transformation of a caterpillar into a butterfly. Again, a process, a journey. 
And there are cultural ideas throughout society that stand in total opposition to what we believe as Christians. Some subtle, some blatant. Whether it's refugees being labelled as cockroaches, the idea that some people don't deserve the rights that others do, that some lives just don't matter, or that people's value is measured by how beautiful or rich they are or the colour of their skin. And every time we choose to either accept or reject these ideas, we're slowly changing our minds either transforming or conforming. Conforming is a somewhat passive act. It kind of happens to us as we absorb the cultural and social influences around us. Transforming is harder, needs to be an active choice. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to conform and were willing to die as a result. Trevor Huddleston refused to conform and he transformed his mind as well as those around him, not least Desmond Tutu, who in turn refused to conform and literally helped to transform an entire country. Now, just as the band come back up, I'm going to reread that verse, Romans 12, 2, uh, this time from a different translation. Uh, the Amplified Bible, which is a, a great translation where the text is fleshed out. Um, and as I read uh, this verse, I'd invite you to close your eyes, listen closely to the words, and reflect on a simple yet inescapable question. Do you want to be conformed? or transformed. Do not be conformed to this world any longer with its superficial values and customs, but be transformed and progressively changed as you mature spiritually by the renewing of your mind, focusing on godly values and ethical attitudes so that you may prove for yourselves what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect in his plan and purpose for you.